Who's ever had eaten something that's uh, made them sick? Who's ever had food poisoning? Or, you know, been really reacted to some, badly to something afterwards? See, if you get a meal and it's got something not right in it, uh, if it looks good and smells good and tastes okay, you don't know. You do a, you know, a couple of hours later, you know. You know really badly. Uh, but it doesn't come with a label, you know, this food is off or this food's going to make you sick or, or there's nothing like that on the food at all. No, it's just hidden away and we're looking tonight at corruption we're looking at corruption in the world and it doesn't people don't go around saying you know, i'm corrupt there's no big signs you know, we're a corrupt group we're the corrupt group there's nothing like that you know when i was a policeman i first became a policeman and i, I just got out on the streets of liverpool and i'm driving around thinking how do you spot the bad guys because you know when i was growing up this is way where's a kid this is many years ago the, the black and white television, that used to happen, be, sorry people, but it used to happen black and white television, and the bad guys were always dressed in black, and the good guys were always dressed in white. And if it was cowboys, the bad guys had black hats, and the good guys had white hats. And I'm driving around a police car thinking, how do you spot the bad guys? You know, you had an idea, oh, bad guys are somehow look different from everyone else, but they didn't. You know, oh, yes, someone's drunk or playing up, yes, but just generally speaking, criminals and bad people did not look any different from anyone else. And that's the problem with corruption. You know, we see investigations come out about some group being corrupt or some banking group being corrupt or some politician corrupt or some sort of corruption been going on for a long time. But it's been hidden. It's been disguised. It's been covered up. Corruption is hard to see. But the impact is huge, and we're looking at that tonight because what's happened is into the church Peter's writing to, uh, there's uh, false people come in um, with corrupt teaching and they're taking away people and they're going to destroy their lives. Uh, They're ruthless, they're greedy, they don't care. And Peter's writing to warn them. And the sort of world that we live in has always had some corruption in it. No, I shouldn't say some. I should say very corrupt. If we go back to Psalm 14, time of David, that's about 3,000 years ago. And David writes and says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. No one does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there's any who understand, any who seek God, all have turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So at that time, David, God's saying they're all corrupt. Corrupt means that no one's perfect. Corrupt means that people follow their own selves and don't always look to God. Every time we come together, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that we sin, we acknowledge we fail. We recognise we totally depend on Jesus Christ because we're in trouble. And corrupt's a a severe word, but it means something good turned into something bad. And God has made us and we basically are good. But something bad happens inside of us because we turn ourselves off to God, ignoring him, and go and do things that he doesn't please him. That's sin. And so this idea of corruption, yes, it's in the world. It's actually in us. It's in human beings. And we need to recognise it so that we don't get trapped by it. 
The good news here in this passage, in uh, chapter 1, we've already looked at that, is God is on our side. In chapter 1, verse 3, God has called us to him. He's revealed Jesus Christ to us. He's calling us to him. He's seeking us out. And chapter 1, verse 4, he wants us to escape the corruption that's in the world. So God knows there's a problem. He's calling us. He's working in us. He wants us to escape. But we need to be aware of what's going on. We need to understand what surrounds us. Because as the criminals that I was looking for as a policeman didn't have a big label, I'm a criminal, and corruption that's around us, I'm corrupt, I'm going to corrupt you. We don't see that. But we have to be discerning. And look what he says about the false prophets in chapter 2. False prophets and false teachers. There are also false prophets among you, just as there are some false teachers among you. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So they're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies. It's all done in secret because they're not going to come up to you and say, you're a Christian, I want to take you out of following Christ, I want to warp your beliefs, I want to get you to another place where you're going to serve me and do what I want. They wouldn't tell you that because what would you do? You'd get away from them, wouldn't you? It's a secret. And these heresies, what's a heresy? Well, a heresy is going to start off with something good, but it's going to warp it and twist it and move it till in the end it's rubbish. And Peter says that about it. And so it's going to seem very innocent, like adding things to the truth and giving you a deeper insight, but what it's doing is moving you away from Jesus. And the more you move away, the dangerous it becomes. And we can see one of that happening in our society because we, Jesus summed all the commandments up with the greatest commandment, love God with your whole being, mind, body, soul and spirit. Love God with your whole being. And then he said, and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, uh, people will easily pick up the idea of, oh, love your neighbour, um, but then they turn the word love around because they take it away from being uh, combined with loving God, which defines what that love is, and they introduce a love of the world, and the love of the world, it says... If you uh, want to love people, then they, they do things that please you. It's all centered around you. you getting things from people, not you giving. And so people can take what is a good Christian commandment and begin to twist it. And that's what these guys here in Peter do. And we'll look at that in a minute. Instead of keeping in context of love one another is following loving God. And so when you love God, you'll obey God and please God and God will then tell us how to love other people. And God's love to us is a love that serves us and protects us and cares for us. And we're to have that same love for others. Totally different from the way the world will twist that, the way the corruption of the world will try and change that. And look at verse 2. Many will follow their shameful ways. And will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Shameful ways. They want to do as pleases them. And they don't care what it costs with other people. We saw that in the Royal Commission into uh, children recently across Australia. We saw people, not just in churches, but in all sorts of organisations, doing things that please them and shameful things and didn't care what sort of impact it had. It was disgusting. 
And that's where it leads to. And verse 3 says that there's a sort of sexual thing here, but in verse 3 there's also a money thing. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. They're greedy people. They want for themselves. It's all about me, me, me. They know how to exploit people with stories. They, they can just entice people. We have that today in what's called the prosperity gospel. People can take the, the message about Jesus but then twist it and change it by saying that, um, and I heard a, um, about two years ago at the summer school at Katoomba in January, I heard an African bishop talk about the problem he was having in his country. He said, in Africa, we've got this hugely growing uh, group in our church. You know, we have hundreds coming to Christ, and I've got a church of 1,000 people. It was you know, a massive church. He said, my problem is I've got all these new converts which rapidly try to dis- disciple them because on the fringe into our city moved this um, church which has this prosperity gospel, and the minister there comes and he drives in this big flash carriage, his own private jet, he lives in a big house, and all the people with him are having a lot of wealth, and they, they, they sort of portray themselves as very wealthy, and they say to people, come and join us, follow our teaching, give to us, and you will have the same lifestyle. And you'll have health, wealth and happiness. Everything will go right, nothing will go wrong. And people believe it. And so they leave this church that they've been uh, become Christians in, they go over this other one and they give over all they have and they, they, they run around serving. They're all happy for a while, but after about 12 months they've got nothing out of it. They're broke. They're disillusioned. The worst they'll go is just go off and never have nothing to do with Christ again. Sometimes they come back to this bishop's church, all broken people, and he's got to try and restore them. That happens all over the place. There are people who make outlandish promises that are not in the Bible just to draw people in. And they're greedy. And they're exploiting them. And that was happening here. And look what it says in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned and sent them into hell, putting them in a gloomy dungeon to be held in judgment... And if he'd not spare the ancient world when he brought the floods, and that's the time of Noah, uh, at the time of Noah in Genesis 6, people were following every inclination of their heart. They're only doing evil. They're totally ignoring God, and only Noah and his family were saved. The fallen angels, we think of the devil and evil spirits. We're not really sure about what that means. And it says in verse 6, if he condemns Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah was where Lot was and Abraham's brother. Two angels went to him uh, to t- tell him to come out of, the ha- out of the city. When they came that night, uh, men, young men and old men came to the house, being on the door, uh, demanding they come out so they could have sex with the, um, the visitors. They're going to rape them, force them upon them. Um, and it says that in verse 7, um, God rescued Lot, who was distressed by the filthy lies of these lawless men. He was tormented in his soul. And when he heard and saw what he heard in verse 8 and verse 9, I love verse 9. Because God sees the ugliness of this world and he does not like it. Look what happens though in verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men and women from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment and will continue their punishment. God knows how to rescue us, to rescue us from this corrupt world. And even when the corruption is just so strong and powerful and right in our face, he still rescues us. 
and he will judge those people. Even if they don't get caught by human society, by the law, by the police, God will judge them. He's not going to forget. We can rest assured about that. And these people that he's writing about are bold and arrogant. They're just so full of themselves. In verse 10, they're corrupted. Those who corrupt, follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority, bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. They're not afraid to talk about God and angels and whatever and make up all sorts of stories and to suit themselves. They're just, just so full of themselves right now and they're dangerous. It says in verse 12, they're brute beasts, creatures of instinct. All they want is power and control over people. And notice in this passage, I read the book a few times, Peter doesn't actually describe the heresies. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he tell them what he, I mean, he alludes that, you know, there's, there's sex involved and there's greed involved. He alludes that, but he doesn't actually tell us what it's all about. Why? Because they're talking such rubbish, he doesn't want to give any weight to what they're saying. He doesn't even outline in any detail what they're saying. It's total disregard. It's a whole lot of rubbish. He's not even going to go there. Doesn't even worth a rebuke. He doesn't want to give any weight to what they're saying at all. It says in verse 13, their pleasure is just to carouse in broad daylight. They're like blots and blemishes that stand out on your skin. They love to be seen by people. They take pleasure in it. Um, it says their eyes, in verse 14, their eyes are full of adultery. They see every woman that is viewed as a potential sex partner and so forth. They want to seduce the unstable, the weak ones who are vulnerable. And many years ago, uh, when I was in Bundanoon, I talked to a guy who loved to party and stuff. He told me he's going down to the gay Mardi Gras. I said, where are you going there? You, you know, you're not gay, I think. So I knew his wife and stuff. I'm sure he wasn't going. Why are you going there? Oh, it's a wild night. It's like going watching all these outrageous things they do and how they dress. And that's what he was doing. He thought it was just some wild stuff and he wanted to go and see it. And it's these people that Peter are writing about. They love people to see the way they behave. And they'll do some wild things too. They'll, they'll do it in public and, and they just want people to be drawn into it all. We don't exactly know what it is, but that's what Peter's described to us. It says in the second part of verse 14. With eyes full of adultery in that first part, that's the sex part. Uh, in the second part he says, Are they seduced, the unstable, they're experts in greed. An accused brood. This word, um, you don't actually see it in, in the English, but the word in Greek I read was for experts, is like someone who trains like an athlete, who's you know, perfected the, their, their greed. They've really worked hard at, at how, to, how to master greed. Not just how to be greedy, but how to get stuff from people. Conmen. Expert conmen. 
I was talking to a bishop in another church, another diocese, who uh, this man came into the church and he seemed like a real keen, committed Christian and very capable and they, they gave him some responsibility. He started sorting out some things in the church that weren't right, some property stuff and finding stuff. He started living somewhere in the, in the church. And about uh, 10 months later, they realised that lots of work that was getting done didn't seem to get done. There was always excuses or whatever. And they had a bit of a look and in the end they found this guy was writing cheques for different groups, but he was cashing them themselves. And the work wasn't getting done. About $20,000 got ripped off. There's people like that around. And they just, and, and the problem was when the bishop found out, no one would believe it. This was such a nice guy. No one would believe it. Finally, he produced the evidence, and they couldn't not believe what had happened. These are experts. And in verse 17, they're like springs without water. And this, this is not, nothing to us because what's a spring? But if you're out walking in the bush and stuff and you want to drink, the spring's really helpful. But remember, the days this was written, they would walk places mostly or they might have an animal to ride on um, and they might take a little bit of water. But there was no shops. There was no taps. And if you came across a nice cool spring and it was really hot, you'd go over there and want to get a drink. So... They're like um, going along seeing a, a lot of trees in a gully. There's water down there. I'll go and get a drink. But you go down expecting a drink and there's no water there at all. And that's what these false teachers are. They're promising a satisfying truth and a full life and, and problem solved, but they're actually offering nothing. Nothing at all. Verse 18, boastful words, they sound impressive, they entice people who are just escaping. They're preying on the new converts. Verse 19, they promise freedom, probably from moral restraint, probably, you know, you can do anything you want, live the way you want, there's no reference point, you're not going to be troubled by that. They're promising that to people. And they become slaves to depravity. Anything that's depraved, the worse the better. A few years ago, I heard a lady speak about pornography, and she said, the problem with pornography is that it get, uh, it's what you look at stimulates you and stimulates adrenaline in your mind. And, and what happens is after a while, you build up a, a tolerance to that amount of adrenaline, so you need to have something more that's more uh, worse than what you looked at, and then worse again and worse again and worse again to keep building up that stimulation. And it doesn't just apply to Pornography applies anything of adrenaline. It applies you know, exciting sports. It applies to anything that really you know, gets you excited adrenaline-wise. You can be, just need more and more of it sometimes. You have to keep upping the, the bar of what you do. And you can become addicted to it. You can just become, you know, oh, I can't get enough of this. And, and gambling's another thing too. In this case, the people have become slaves. It was a big buzz, it was a lot of excitement and now they're just hooked on it and they're slaves to it. I like what it says in verse 19. It says something to all of us. Verse 19 says, A man or woman is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Whatever has mastered him or her. What's mastered us? What can't we do without? What do we just keep seeking and seeking? What gives us that adrenaline rush? What creates that excitement in us? It's a good question to keep asking. It should be Jesus. In verse 20, 
Verse 20 is an encouragement. If they, they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, it means you do escape the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Having Jesus as your Lord and the one who saves you. Lord means your master following him and Saviour relying on him to get to heaven, not what you do. Then you are saved from the world. But if you're again entangled and overcome, you're worse off. And that's a grave warning to everyone. We don't want to be entangled. And these false teachers are bringing people who are saved and re-entangling them in the world with all these lies and their con men. And Peter's writing about that. What does it mean for you and I? Remember, we still live in a corrupt world. People, people who come to us are not going to say, I'm corrupt, I want to mislead you, just follow me. They're not going to give us that warning. They're not going to say things that, uh, we're not going to be said things like, you know, um, stop, you know, don't go to church. Um, they won't tell us that. Or they won't say, you know, don't do this or don't do that. It'll be just subtle. And we don't want to get caught in it. So what do we do? Let's be aware of the danger in this corrupt world. Let's have caution not to be drawn away from knowing and following Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Let's stick close to Jesus. Let's, in fact, have a growing passion for Jesus, fully satisfied in him, content in him, wanting Jesus more and more and more. And let's recognise God has called us to him. And we can have confidence and we can have strength and we can have hope because of that. It also tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 4, that he, we have indwelling God's nature, the Holy Spirit in us, the divine nature. We're sealed up. We belong to God. We've got a new life with him. We're adopted as his sons and daughters, it tells us in the Bible. So let's live with a different focus from the world around us. And let's have a different set of values and let that all be focused on Jesus. And one more thing. We saw this last week, chapter 1. And chapter 1 talks about how, from, with our faith, we should add seven things, the last being love. But the seven qualities we should add to our faith. And if we have these, we're going to keep going forward. We're, we're going to keep growing. We're not going to be overcome by the world. What are they again? To faith, we need to add goodness. To goodness, we need to add knowledge. To knowledge we need to add, starts with S, self-control. To self-control we need to add, starts with P, perseverance. To perseverance we need to add godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and finally, love. If we have those seven things, we're not going to get conned by the world. We're going to keep going in the right direction no matter what happens. God's looking after us. We don't need to fear. We just need to be aware keep on the right track.